Well, it was a crazy journey because this was never in any kind of a plan that I had. We were just scrolling through the TES and this, I saw a job in Bangkok and my husband said, go for it. We wanted our kids to have a global experience for education. So that was our driving focus. We thought we were going for two years and um, 12 years later, we've just come back. Which I think is really characteristic of international teaching, actually. It can take you on amazing journeys. It was just something that I, I love to go into. And when I got there, I realized that there's this whole huge world of international teaching. International schools are springing up all over the place. And they engage with all types of music. Often these international schools want a music programme and actually they want to have the best music programme in their area. We're living in a, in a country which is vibrant with cultural and musical experiences and there are children who've lived all around the world. Learning to really adapt, I mean just to let some of your own assumptions go. The more I've observed globally, it's not necessarily about the place, it's about the whole experience. Welcome to the Music Teachers in International Schools podcast, where we explore the ideas and experiences of amazing people working in and around music education in the international school context. I'm your host, Chris Cormer, and I am an ex-head of music. Uh, that worked for 10 years in international schools in Argentina and Malaysia. I'm now deep diving into this world through this podcast to build community and improve connection throughout this global network. Today, I have Andy Gledhill on the show, and Andy is well known in the international school music education scene, especially in the Middle East and Asia. Andy has worked with hundreds of international school music teachers over the years, specifically in the area of culturally unique styles of music, focusing on drumming and percussion. He has produced books and resources to support teachers and presents workshops and speaks at conferences around the world. So Andy, how are you doing? And where are you speaking with me from today? Hi, Chris. I'm great. Thank you. Nice to see you. I'm speaking to you from glorious West Wales in the UK from my home studio here and um, it's been raining constantly for the last two days so I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to get back out on the road again soon and enjoy some of the nice weather in the southern hemisphere. That would be great and I'm noticing for those people who are going to be watching the uh, YouTube clip I'm noticing a globe in the background a world globe um, quite apt for this conversation I'd say. Yeah I, I like to have it on and I, I whatever bit of music I'm working on I tend to turn the globe so I've got that region facing me it just sort of inspires me a little bit and gives me a bit of a feeling of uh, although I'm in Wales in the UK I can uh, concentrate on the area of music I'm working on. Yeah nice great so let's get stuck into this tell me about your background as a music educator Andy like how did you get into your particular niche niche Hmm, that's an interesting word, niche, um, niche, <laughs> focusing on culturally unique styles of um, drumming and percussion. Tell me a bit about that. Well, I, I suppose it all started a long time ago. I, I, I started playing uh, music very young. I was four years old when I, I joined my local Salvation Army band. And um, at first they gave me a, a cornet to play, which is you know, like a small trumpet, but um, I, I couldn't play a note on it. So they thought, oh, he's, he's, he's not musical, we'll, we'll give him the drum. <laughs> and of course, it was the best thing they did for me because uh, I went on to become a, a professional uh, percussionist. But um, I grew up playing uh, really early in, in all sorts of function bands and theatre shows 
around uh, my home in Norfolk in the UK at the time. Uh, and by the age of 15, I was, I was doing professional gigs, um, even really before I'd, I'd, I'd learned studying music at a formal level at school. Um, so that was a really good background for me. And then um, after I left school, I went to college and took a music diploma, uh, moved to London uh, when I was 17. Uh, then I began playing for West End shows, TV, film sessions, and I spent a great 15 years in London as a session musician, percussionist and drummer, and, and um, had some great experiences there. But during that time, I, I became involved as a music educator as well, as an actual extension, really, of my work as a performing musician. Most other musicians who I knew at the time and still do teach in some form or another. Mm. Um, and as my own sort of teaching developed, um, um, I, I took a position as head of percussion from a music service in Bristol, um, got myself some postgraduate qualifications and uh, did a PGCE um, and, and got into teaching that way. Um, and eventually I ended up being the head of the music service for Bristol um, and, and the county music advisor. Um, and now I've, I've been teaching for uh, 20 years at Bath Spa on their specialist music postgraduate PGCE courses. But as a percussionist, I, I was always interested in ethnic music. And I was really lucky to have the opportunity to go to Zimbabwe in the 1980s uh, by a project uh, run by the British Council. And it, it really opened my eyes to the music of other cultures. And so I began talking and playing with other musicians from, from all over the globe, really. And, and at the time I was living in London, one of the great advantages of, of living in London, there's, there's always a healthy community of musicians from pretty much any country in the world who, mm. who live in London. So you can... You can meet and, 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 and play with these people. But I, I, that really wasn't good enough for me. So I, I embarked on a spree of travel and, and, and music. And um, so I, I, I studied samba in Baja in Brazil, still pans in the Camera, uh, Caribbean, gamelan in Bali and Java, Indian music in New Delhi and Mumbai, djembe in Senegal and Gambia, salsa in Colombia and Cuba, uh, flamenco in Spain and... I, I think at last count, I've visited something like 63 different countries where I've, I've played with musicians and, and taught with them. I mean, I, I sometimes joke that I've played bongos in the Congo, maracas in Caracas. But <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, it's just really um, how, I, how I got into it by, by playing with other musicians and, and really enjoying um, that, that sort of music. And, and it, it occurred to me that I... I didn't have that experience as a young person learning music. I was brought up very much with the Western classical musical tradition. Um, and, and I was thinking, well, why not learn other sorts of music? And so that sort of became one of my aims was to help uh, teachers be able to help young people to enjoy music from all over the globe, not just from uh, a certain region and in a certain style. So was that 67 countries? Uh, 63 different countries, I think, because yeah, I was just yeah. thinking there'd be plenty of listeners here that would uh, be counting off the countries. You know, we we do like to travel us uh, internationally. I think there's an app, educators. isn't there? <laughs> yeah. I had one of those um, posters on the wall, a scratch map, where you could scratch off the yeah, countries. Yeah, I yeah. think I got to 44 um, so far. So I've got a bit of catching up to do. So you were exploring all this music in all these other countries. That's, that is incredible. Um, how did you fit all that in? Like, is has this? How, how many years was that over? Did you? Did you that was probably over about ten years, um, all in all. But um, it, as a as a sort of freelance musician in London, particularly doing West End shows, you know, um, 
I sometimes I do. I, I did, um, for instance, I did the musical Fiddler on the Roof at the London Palladium. Mm. That ran for two years, and after that, I really needed a break. But I, I'd done quite well. I put some money in the bank, so I then take six months off and go travelling, and then you know hopefully come back get another show, or or even you know even if you were trying to get another show, sometimes you didn't. You know, musicians were often uh, have that downtime. So that's when I just take off, and and I was lucky. I I was able to do that. Um, and still, you know, fit it around my career as a performing musician. So the British Council trip to Zimbabwe, obviously there was a connection there. Were all the other trips kind of self-funded or did you have other organisations you're working with? No, some of them, I mean, I went to Colombia and I went to Brazil with the British Council as well. Um, they, unfortunately, a lot of this funding has dried up, but um, I had some friends of mine who taught full-time for the British Council and they were posted to some great places like Botswana. And so I'd go out and visit them and then they'd, while I was there, they'd get me to help with their teaching. The idea was that British teachers went to pretty much old Commonwealth countries to support their teacher training programmes. And, and uh, so I got involved with that. And then later on, the British Council had a, a, a teacher exchange sort of program, um, whereby um, that's when I ended up going to Colombia on a teacher exchange. So we had some Colombian music teachers come over to us. And then we went over to Colombia um, and uh, experienced uh, their music and their teaching there. And they had a very similar system, um, also nipped into Venezuela, although that wasn't a part of the trip because I wanted to see the uh, Sistema mm. um, string projects that the music projects that they had had there so that was really interesting um, but yeah I mean there's there are ways of doing these things you just got to really um, search them out and uh, put yourself forward as well because uh, it, it's like applying for a job applying for these things you know you've got to say why you you are the person they should sponsor to go out there yeah right did you ever go I'm just thinking here traveling again did you ever go to some of the countries and just rock up and and find yourself in situations where you you looked at this music and got involved all the time mm. that's absolutely how i did it all the time the first time i went to indonesia to, to study gamelan i had no appointments with anybody no no real contacts i, I just heard of a place called Lisi, which is the indonesian institute of arts who have a big college in um yogakarta which is um in central java and yeah, I just rocked up there. I literally um, hired, a, hired a moped, which was just a bit outside of town, drove up there and introduced myself to some of the professors and sat in on, on sessions. You know, they were, they were cool with it. Um, and, and, and other examples, one of my favourite stories is I was in Cape Town in South Africa. Um, just They were just doing up the, the, the old docks uh, in Cape Town into a sort of nightlife area. Um, and so some of these bars were turning up and opening up. And I, I was sort of, listening have walked past one heard some music went in and there was this great um you know bunch of south african musicians playing this music and i was really enjoying it and i sat there and then they they had an interval and i saw the, all these guys going to the bar so i rushed to the bar to get there before them and i bought them all a drink i said oh, i'm loving your music run around us and so they were really pleased to die i was buying them all a drink and then i said to them um oh i'd, I'd love to come and play with you guys could i come and sit in on a song, and I, I see their faces drop, you know, like, oh no, what's this little funny little European guy going to do? You know, <laughs> thinks he can thinks he can play with us, you know. And they I, they sort of huddled and had a little talk, and I could hear them say, "Well, he did buy us a drink," you know, <laughs> things like this. And in the end, they said, "Well, look, you can come up when we start. Come and sit on the first 
song of, of the next set, you know, the, the, that's it. No, I said, that's, that's great, absolutely fine. So they came up, I went up, and um, two o'clock in the morning, I was still playing with them because once they saw I could play, they wouldn't let me go. <laughs> it, 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 we just hit it off and it was great. But you could see they were sort of thinking, oh, this isn't going to work. Uh, but of course, being a percussionist and, and having studied music for a little while, I was able to fit in. And that's great, you know, when you do that because um, musicians just uh, are a certain kind. When we play together, we can tell that we know what we're doing. It reminds me of... Uh episode three where I spoke with Jennifer Walden who spoke about being in Taipei and just being in the market and seeing the um the Beijing opera and just just going I need to know about this I need to learn this and so I like your approach you know just jumping in and uh you know buying the beers and getting on getting on the stage and just doing it it's great absolutely and it's it's very much in the culture of, of some musicians to do that I remember uh, over here in the UK we had a visit from some um uh African musicians from uh, Baka, they were uh, the Baka tribe um, in Central Africa. Um, and that, 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 um, that group was called Baka Beyond, which is a sort of pun on the word Baka. But um, they came over and, and the part of the tour that I, I played on, we first had a, a, a band that started the set. And then the second set, we brought out the African musicians as, as a, they were the stars of the show. But of course, as soon as we started playing the first set, they just ran on stage and joined in. <laughs> they couldn't, they couldn't stop themselves, you know. It's, so we, no, no, you're a surprise. You've got to wait. But no, as soon as the music starts, that's it. You know, right up we come. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. So, and uh, in the intro, I spoke a little bit about your connection uh, with international schools. So let's talk a little bit about that um, and sort of pivot the conversation that way. So you've obviously done a lot of travel and. Uh, some of those stories, I mean, we could probably listen to a lot of your stories, but um, in the interest of time, let's talk a bit about your work with the international school community, because I'm sure some listeners will be interested in that. Um, so how did you get involved with international schools? And maybe you can tell us a bit about what, uh, how you've worked with international schools so far. Okay, well, I mean, it, it started off a, a little bit by accident, but um is, I think it's back in about 2014. I've, I've, I've been in many years in post as the uh, director of music at, at Bristol, and um, I'd already sort of started making contacts with various uh, um, ministries of education, really, abroad, um, particularly Singapore, uh, Malaysia a little bit as well. But mostly um, the, the Ministry of Education in Singapore asked me to um, come and help train their teachers to be able to deliver a wider range of music. What they'd found in Singapore at the time is they were they had young people who were very good at Western classical music because that's what they were teaching. You know, little kids whose feet can hardly touch the pedals on the piano were, were playing at a, a grade eight standard. Um, yet they had no improvisation skills. They couldn't compose. They had a very narrow view of music. They didn't have any sort of idea of music from different cultures. And so because I'd um, written a few books by this time on um, teaching um, things like djembe, drumming and uh, samba, um, they asked me to go over to um, uh, the Singapore Music Teachers uh, Training Academy to help see how they could deliver a wider range of music. And so what I did while I was there to really make these trips work for me um, was I reached out to international schools in the area and saying, look, I'm going to be in the area. This is what I do. I've been doing workshops in schools for years in the UK and, and Europe and in North America. Now, would you like me to come and, and see, do some work with your kids? And, and the, the, 
the response was overwhelming. It was really great. The international schools were really keen to have a visit from a, a performing musician uh, to do workshops because they didn't get that opportunity very often because it's so hard to do. Um, and when I do my trips now, they have to be well planned to be able to fly from one place to another and get there in time. But it worked really well the first time I came out and, and sort of the word got around. And, and then I got to know people in the organisation such as uh, Phobosia and, and uh, British schools of the Middle East, where they had a, a, a sort of, you know, collective organisation. So I, d- I did some stuff at uh, some of their conferences and, and uh, then met more people from international schools who'd seen what I did. And, and, and it just sort of expanded from them because, uh, you know, the workshops really work for the schools. And, of course, the best recommendation you can get is from the, the head of a music for one school saying, oh, we had Andy Gledsell come and do these workshops. That was really good. Go, oh, I want him. Why can't I have him? You know? So, you know, they're getting contact and, and, and it works uh, worked really well. So I sort of built up this little network of, of, of schools which I worked with and, you um, yeah, that, that's still going on. It, it's it's really good. And I really enjoy working in the international schools. They've got a, such a, a resource of, of, of talent in their teachers because they recruit from, from everywhere and um, the, the, the experience is, is, is great. Uh, and, and it's actually really diverse in, in the way that um, some, of, some of the schools will have um, the music teachers will be nationals of that uh, country or very close to that area. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, my colleague Ben in the Prince of Wales Island School in, in Penang. He's a fantastic uh, bassoon player, um, but is also now the head of performing arts at the school there. The colleagues will be from all over the, uh, the world, you know, and, mm. and, and uh, it's great to have that resource, that experience, I think. So, I, I, I mean, I have to say when I teach in state schools, um, both here and abroad, the, the teachers are pretty much uh, always from the area of where the school is based, whereas, you know, in the, the, the population of the school um, student population is as diverse as the teacher's population, which is, which is really good. So, um, yeah, it's really, really good to sort of have that connection with the international schools and some of the interesting things that I've found when working in international schools is is uh, is how the the teachers themselves bring their own experiences to the school because, like you said, you've you've you yourself worked in Argentina and Malaysia, two completely different schools, and completely different places. Yeah, you can bring so much more having that experience of working in South America to working in in Southeast Asia, and then you know where you move on. Uh, to before I'm working on the uh, PGCE course at Pass Bar for um, the number of years I have now. I, it's great when I see some of my ex uh, students pop up in um, Kellett in Hong Kong um, and uh, uh, some places in in uh, Amman, just all over the world that they've decided that that's the the journey for them. So I, I really really do enjoy the work I do with the international schools and I think because of my experience of now of having not only played but also taught in various places around the world I can bring something to an international school that I wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't had that experience myself. Absolutely what are some of the things that you have been offering to international schools what are the workshops you deliver maybe just give us a brief outline of that. Okay well um the first thing, one of the first thing I do is ask them what they're particularly interested in, because it's um, it sort of turns into two ways. There's uh, what they might already have, 
Um, for instance, I know your school in Malaysia had a great samba band. So, as you know, I've been there and worked specifically to do help develop that. But also some teachers have particular training needs that they say, well, I'm not terribly confident in this, but I'd love to be able to teach some gamelan or something like that. So I'd, I'd uh, we'd, we'd build the workshops around what um, they, they want and what they think they need also. Mm. Um, but what happens is is the experience for the young people taking part in the workshop uh, is also a, a training opportunity for the teachers to carry on that work because there's very little point of me going to school doing a, a day's workshop and nothing else, there'd be no um, follow on from that, you know, no legacy, if you like. Mm. So um, the work I do with the teachers hopefully will will build on that. And I've, I've seen that because many schools I've been to several times now and I've seen that their departments become really uh, big on, on the global uh, cultural music uh, offer mm. that they have. Um, one of the things I specialise is helping the schools set up things like a samba band or, or a, a djembe drumming group or a, a gamelan ensemble or something like that because um, my books are actually aimed at teachers to show them how to do those sort of things themselves. Um, but it needs a little kickstart to get the, the interest going. And one, one of the things that I also like to help with is uh, schools often say, well, I can't teach gamelan because we haven't got a gamelan, we can't afford. But um, I'm really keen on what I call classroom equivalence, which is how you can replicate um, music styles from around the world, just using what you've got in your classroom. Um, an example being uh, producing the drone that's uh, in Indian raga music that's produced by the Tampura, just by retuning a, a, an acoustic guitar, uh, maybe holding it upright in that style rather than across like that. And just sort of, um, there's, there's all sorts of ways. There's no excuse really not to teach um, certain music styles because you haven't got the instruments, because there are ways around it. And, and those are some of the things that uh, I like to help um, some of the schools do. Really interesting. I like this um, a- adaptation of instruments idea. That was really good. I haven't heard of that one, the tempura and sort of using the, the tuned guitar. It gets me thinking about some conversations about about culturally diverse music that have come up over the years in different ways, both within um, the music teachers in international schools, Facebook group, in conversations, and it's around how to teach this music from different cultures. And it's often called world music. And so I want to talk about this idea of world music with you, if I can. You know, you're so experienced in different styles and different genres from around the world. And some people get worried about this idea of kind of doing it authentically or doing it right, or I can't do this because, and and it just gets all a bit tricky. So how would you address that? How do you address the idea of world music? And how do you deal with this authenticity conversation Um you know, in, in music education. Okay. Well, I mean, my, my, my understanding of the term world music was actually created by the record industry. It was a way that they came up with categorising some of the music that they had in their back catalogues that didn't fit into existing labels. Like, you know, you see, you used to see in the old records, sort of jazz here, mm. country music there, rock there. And they had all this other stuff. So they, they came up with this term world music. So they had somewhere to put it in a record store, yeah, right. which of course is absolute, absolutely no, no use for anybody working in education. But then actually it's really hard to replace that term world music. It's become part of, of, uh, of what, what we say, although we don't like it. I mean, I've 
been using the phrase the music of different cultures for a long time um, and I began replacing world with global because it just gets away from that thing but I mean what, what was important I think to point out is that each different form of culturally diverse music has its own influences its own meanings its own musical techniques so you can't generalize about world music this is world music because it's all uh, it's also completely different from each other mm. and actually even within certain regions people will argue about what is authentic within their own region. Um, so, uh, but the issue of the authenticity when engaging in music from other cultures, is not a problem for me. I mean, as long as we teach music alongside with social and cultural contexts that relate to that music, and we are clear that what we are doing is our own honest representation of another culture's music, um, I think we're doing it okay because that's what it is. I mean, I teach a lot of music from all over different parts of the world but i'm clearly not from anywhere else but an ordinary european guy you know um that i've visited the countries that i i've studied the music i sat down i've played with the musicians i talked to them about the music and what it means to them um and i think because i have that insight i can share that with them and i haven't had any problems with it but and i recently wrote a paper for a conference at cambridge university and my paper was called "Are We Teaching Global Music Authentically?" Mm. Um, and the con and the conclusion was no, <laughs> and perhaps we shouldn't be, because um, I mean, often ethnic music isn't something that's taught in schools in the country of that music's origin. Um, if you go to Brazil, they don't teach samba in school. You don't learn to play samba in your school music lesson. It's something that you do outside of school. It's part of uh, you know your cultural, your wider heritage. I mean, those of us who teach in schools. We're bound by, you know, curriculum, syllabus. We get lesson observed to ensure we're teaching effectively. We've got a strong emphasis in the school on well-being and child protection. Um, this isn't the case in many places in the world where music is taught as part of informal education or outside of school. So, I mean, for instance, the guru system that's used in India. I mean, that's really hard to transfer that into how we teach music in schools. But And it's not really, um, you know, the, the way to do it. But... I mean, it doesn't mean we shouldn't teach, for instance, Indian music in schools. We just need to adapt to how we teach it to suit our own educational environments. And, and I think as long as we do it with that way, with that honest um, representation of another culture's music and clear, teach it alongside the social and cultural context of the music and what it means to the people whose music it is, I don't think we can go wrong. Mm, that, was, that was really well summed up. Is there a way to... Like, or do you have any tips for teachers that uh, would like to teach all sorts of different culturally diverse musics, um, but aren't sure where to go for resources on the social cultural context stuff? Yeah, um, well, I think the best thing you can try and do is try and find somebody who plays that music from that country and just talk to them about it. I, I, I don't know if, if you've ever talked to a Fado singer from Portugal. They're so passionate about their music. It's not well known. It's not really terribly commercial, but it's, it, it's, and it's the same with um, uh, some, some uh, Spanish flamenco. You spoke to the gypsy musicians there. It's so much part of their heritage. It's, it's that's almost the heritage is more important. The music is almost a sideline mm. to what they're, they're expressing. It's their, it's their, their heritage, their background, their, their, you know, years of, of um, and generations of, of experience in life. Um, so, yeah, sure, if you could find someone who's from it or or just, I mean, I think the trouble is with, you know, uh, YouTube. Let's, let's have a go mm. YouTube, but we're going to be on YouTube. But, you know, you, you search things on YouTube and you come up with 
you know, what is um, what comes up first, you know, and it quite often isn't what you're trying to get at. Yeah. Because particularly if you put music, so I mean, uh, if for, for instance, if you put flamenco music, you're going to come up with Gypsy Kings and things like that, which is fine, but it's perhaps more on the commercial edge of flamenco music. But if you put in something like um, uh, Spanish Gypsy musicians talk about or something like that, you're going to get much more, uh, you're more likely to come up with some of that more cultural influences rather than the um, uh, the, the commercial end of things. So, yeah, that, that's what I'd sort of say is, is try and look, look for that. But uh, there's there's no uh, no reason not to just see what happens. No, have a go. Why not? I think that's like what you said. Just it, as long as you're honest about it, you know. I liked how you termed that. Right. You just got to be honest about it and do your best. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and what you find, I think, what I've always found is the more you get into something, the more it reveals itself to you in a way. You know, the music will will help you get into the, the cultural side of it. The more you get into it, the more... I mean, an example for me would be this, the Spanish flamenco musicians. For a couple of years, I'm, I had a an old VW camper van. And in the summer holidays, I used to drive it down to Andalusia in, in southern Spain. And I'd search out these festivals where the gypsy musicians play. And I found it very hard to get to know them because um, they didn't like me, I wasn't one of them, all this sort of stuff. But I could play a, a, play a mean cajon and, and it's not so bad on the bongos and things. So I start playing with them and then that, that sort of melted a bit, you know. And when I got to know them more and I got more accepted, I found out that I was learning much more about the music. And, you know, that, that's, that's what will happen. It's all, it's all a journey. I mean, you can't expect to become, you know, an expert on, on another culture's music overnight. Mm. Um, it, but you can start a journey. Very nice. Okay. I mean, we could probably talk about that all day and I'm sure some of our listeners would have some some more questions maybe for you, Andy. So if you're listening and you're, think, you're thinking, I've got a question, I want to ask Andy something, um, check out the show notes. We'll have all of Andy's contact details, uh, ways you can get in touch with him so that you can ask those questions because I've got about 50 questions in my mind, but I'm, I'm going to leave them for today and, and move on because there's another area I wanted to touch on which is this connection that you've been making around well-being and music. And I noticed during the pandemic, there was some some work you were doing on this. You've got an upcoming conference, uh, which I saw uh, coming up, which you can talk about if you like. Tell me a bit more about this connection that you're making between well-being and music. Okay, well, I've started a project called Mo- Music, Mindfulness and Well-Being. It was sort of set up in response to the impact of the, of the COVID academic on not only students, but teachers and music in schools and other educational environments. So I decided that um, because of the experience I've had with all these different sorts of music from uh, different cultures around the planet, nearly all of them have a, a theme of well-being within, within that music. And so I decided to sort of see what I could pull together with that. So I construct, constructed this, this music program, draws on sort of these components of musical cultures from around the world, but combined with some techniques I've learned um, from um, some music therapy and, and sound therapy courses that I've done. Um, so the uh, project will hopefully help to promote relaxation, mindfulness and well-being and enable students to actively create their own mindful music to help relieve stress and, and so improve the well-being. But um, they're, they're practical music-making sessions 
So what we do is I use music from a range of cultures, specifically some djembe polyrhythms from East Africa, gong cycles from Bali, Indian raga drones, melodic mantras from South America and Asia, and put these all together and help students create this music, which helps them become mindful and promote well-being. And, and it's been shown that this can help to boost the immune system, releases mood-enhancing endorphins, promotes greater levels of energy and enthusiasm, reduces stress, anxiety and depression. And I've had some, some absolutely fantastic sessions where we've done this. And, and um, I mean, I first noticed things like this years ago when, um, when, my, when my grandchildren were very young and I was babysitting and they'd be crying in the crib. And I, I decided I had a, a Tampura drone machine, which is an electronic drone machine. You can get them on your phones now. Mm. It's just that drone. And I found it very peaceful. I put that on and it worked. You know, the, the baby would just drop off to sleep with this sort of nice drone going. We're all going to be trying that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, it's a good tip for parents there. And, um, and I thought, you know, again, this is years ago and I was starting to think in my mind about, you know, the, the purposes of music in other cultures. I mean, generally the purpose of music in um i suppose in modern popular culture is entertainment hmm. um that's you know the, the all pretty much pop music its main and principal task is to entertain whereas uh, music in other uh, cultures it's not so much about entertaining it is about well-being it is about um you know, you know some devotional aspects in certain religions and things like that so i, I looked at drawing all this together and and uh, and came up with this project so i'm, I'm talking about it at the um guest conference at the World uh, Trade Center in Dubai on November the 16th, I think it is. And that's uh, G, sorry to interrupt, that's G-E-S-S, isn't it? Yeah, I think it stands for Global Education Supplies and Solutions. I don't know if you've been to one, but it's an absolutely massive conference with huge stands by the big players like Google and Lego and, and all these sort of things. Um, but they've got a well-being stage, and so I'm, I'm doing a talk on my project there but I'm also in Dubai on November the 14th doing a all-day um, teacher training session for teachers from international schools where I'll be talking about this as well. And I'm also talking about this at the Phobosir uh, conference in Bangkok. I think it's the 24th or something like that of November as well. But, um, yeah, it's, it's become something that um, I think has become really important because I've seen, and I know many of my colleagues have, the impact that the, the pandemic has had on young people and how <clears throat> I was talking to a colleague who, teaches 17, 18 year olds. And he says that the, the new group, the new co cohort seem to have missed out. They're behaving like 15 year olds rather than, you know, they seem to have, those two years is really missing from them. And, and uh, I think, you know, we owe it to the young people to sort of help them to sort of, if we can get over the, uh, the trauma. Um, I mean, we all, we, all, we all saw people die. We all saw fear for our own lives. Mm. I can't remember any time in my life um, I, I'm lucky enough that I haven't lived through a big war like perhaps my parents did. But that is the nearest thing I think my generation, our generation might have come across mm. is that, that thing. And I think it does affect people. And I think music and music can be a great medicine. You know, it, we just need to double the dose. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I want a double dose of music. That's true. <laughs> okay, great. So we've got some trips coming up, which is specifically focusing on this well-being and music thing. And that's great. I think that's going to be exciting for people to experience. And uh, I'll, I look forward to hearing where this goes. Tell us a bit more about what else is coming up for you. What other sort of future plans have you got? Trips, tours, working with teachers, schools? 
Yeah, I mean, all, all, all of the same. I mean, things are now just getting back to how they were pre-pandemic. So um, being able to travel again is great for me because um, I've been doing lots of stuff on Zoom. But, I mean, Zoom and, and teaching music is particularly uh, hard, particularly when it's instrumental music and you, you want to... I mean, there's that touchy-feely thing about a musical instrument. I love musical instruments yeah. just as works of art as well as... Me. And and so not to be able to sort of play them in groups is... A, is so I'm looking forward to going back to that. But um, uh, one of the things I've become involved in recently as well, which I'm very excited about, is, is actually designing and adapting... Well, designing new instruments, new percussion instruments... And adapting traditional instruments to bring them up more up to date and make them more accessible to more young people being able to play. And an example of this is the thing called a slap djembe, which I've helped a manufacturer called Percussion Plus produce. Where what we've done, we've got a djembe, but we've printed the hand positions on the actual drum head where you have to play to get the different tones. And I've, I've created a whole lot of resources about that. So the music is actually now the pictures of the hands on the drum. So you follow, you play what you see, you mm. follow what you see on the on the drums. So I'll be talking about that in uh, in Bangkok as well. Um, and it's been it's phenomenally successful. We've sold loads of these already all around the world, the djembe, these new djembes. And um, so I'm, I'm working with this company. We're, we're looking at um, how to make the music more accessible by... I wouldn't say improving, but adapting mm. traditional some traditional music instruments to bring them um, more accessible to young people. So that's something else that I'm I'm really sort of looking forward to doing more of. And if a music teacher in an international school wants to get you involved in, you know, either working with their students, working with teachers, um, you know, you mentioned the workshop in Dubai. If they want to get you into their region to do a workshop, how can uh, how can people I mean, I've just mentioned some of them. How can people work with you, firstly? Have I covered it all? And then uh, how do they get in touch with you? Well, the first thing is, is to have an initial chat and see what we could, you know, how we can work together, what your particular learning needs are or requirements, whatever. And, and what what's great about international schools is they have fantastic websites. So if you Google Andy Gledsel, we just scroll down, there's loads of footage of me at places like Wellington School um, in Malaysia and uh, working with the teachers at Boston Public Schools in the USA. So you can see the stuff I'm doing firsthand and, and whether that's something you'd like to do. But yeah, so Google me, my, my own website is just my name.co.uk. Join my, I've got a Facebook group for my music mindfulness and well-being. So people interested in that could join that. Yeah, but I, I just just get in touch, have a look at what I've done with, with other schools, and think what might be appropriate for your school, what are your particular school's interests, needs, and you know if there's anything I can do to help, just get in touch. Andy, thank you so much for sharing your journey and uh, all the information and all the projects you're working on. Was there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to share? Wanted to let our listeners know? I think there's plenty in there to think about. <laughs> I mean, if we if we have time in a year or so perhaps we'll do another one and, and we'll catch up again perfect well thank you so much for your time again and good luck with the upcoming conferences and travel um and yeah thank you thank you so much for being with us today thank you chris you've been a pleasure and well done for you for setting up this uh, this whole international school music teachers group i know it's been really well received by the teachers i've talked to thank you for listening to this episode of the music teachers in international schools podcast Listen to other episodes by visiting mtiis.com or learn more about our community on Facebook by simply searching for Music Teachers in International Schools.
If you know someone who you think I should get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at chriscoolma.com. C-H-R-I-S-K-O-E-L-M-A.com. See you next time.